Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. Today, for your listening pleasure, we have an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on October 23rd of 2016 under the headline, Bootlegger's Liquor Buy Ended in Dramatic Murder. Here we go. It was well after 8 p.m. on the night of April 16, 1922, around 82nd and Division in Portland, and Albert Bowker was getting nervous. His 49-year-old brother Frank had left downtown Portland at 7 p.m. in a touring car with a slim, charismatic 24-year-old man named Russell Hacker. Hacker had a contact, known to him only as Bob, who had dozens and dozens of cases of Johnny Walker Black Label for sale at $85 a pop. So Frank had scrounged up all the money he had, borrowed another 600 bucks from his housekeeper, tucked his 38 special into his pocket, and gone with Hecker to go get it from the backcountry barn where it was all stashed. They'd planned to meet up an hour later, after Bob had his money and Frank had his whiskey at 82nd and Division. But now, as the night dragged on past 9 p.m., Albert was starting to worry that things might have gone sour. They had. The next morning, about the same time Frank Bowker's brother was finally realizing he would have to go to the police, Russell Hecker's brother's business partner was probably thinking the same thing. Hecker had borrowed a car from him the night before for a quick run out to the outskirts of East Portland and had never returned. But at 9 a.m., young Russell himself poked his head in the door, looking freshly scrubbed, if not very well rested, and apologizing for keeping the car late. The car, he said, was parked a couple blocks away, near Second and Pine. Relieved, the car's owner sent one of his salesmen to retrieve the car and take it to a tire shop. Upon arrival, the salesman couldn't help noticing the seat cushions looked a little funny, as if they'd been replaced with brand new ones. The rubber floor mats looked new, too. And that was particularly noticeable because the rest of the car was, well, drenched in blood. The interior, the running boards, even the undercarriage, blood. Well, Hecker was soon in custody, of course, and the police had many pointed questions to pose to him. But he had spent the morning getting advice from his father and his attorney, and both had told him to keep his mouth shut. However, police chief Leon Jenkins did manage to learn from Hecker's father the location of the body. Hecker had dumped the body, wrapped in a hop sack and weighted with rocks, over the rail of the bridge across the Kalapuya River, at the end of what's now Queen Avenue in Albany. The investigation revealed the apparent rendezvous point for the whiskey buy, a lonely stretch of road between Gladstone and Oregon City. Witnesses said a touring car had come there around 7.30 and parked just off the highway, tucked back into some trees. Sometime thereafter, neighbors heard a shot, The blood trail started a few hundred feet south, apparently dripping from the chassis of the car. Farther south, the attendant at a service station in St. Paul remembered the car coming in for gasoline. The attendant had seen blood between the driver's fingers when he removed his gas cap, and he was shaking so badly he'd dropped the cap. It had rolled under the car, and when the attendant ducked down to retrieve it, he'd noticed more blood dripping off the running boards. 
Perhaps understandably, the attendant hadn't asked any questions or dared to peek into the floorboards of the back seat where the lumpy, crimson-stained hopsack lay, but he remembered the visitor well. At the Albany Hotel, they remembered him too, but by the time he was signing the guest register there, the body was gone and he'd cleaned the blood off his hands. He checked in around 2 a.m., took a bath, wrote a letter to his father, bought some cigarettes, and then left for Portland before dawn the next day. In court, Hecker finally told his full story. On the drive to Baker's Bridge, Hecker testified Frank Bowker had been awful company, waving his thirty-eight around and talking like a big-shot gangster. On the way, he'd suggested they simply play the liquor by like a stick-up. Rob Bob, keep the money and the booze, too. Quote, it means $1,200 or $1,400 to you, he added, and he can't do anything with this gun in his face. But Hecker had told him no, a deal was a deal. Then Hecker claimed, when they arrived at the rendezvous point and he tried to signal Bob with the car's spotlight, Bowker had freaked. Are you double-crossing me? he yelled. And out came that thirty-eight again, and from three feet away, in the dark, closed interior of a touring car on a chilly April night, Bowker fired, sending a bullet whistling past Hecker's ear and off into the night. Hecker, luckily, had borrowed a forty-five automatic from his former employer, so he whipped that out now and returned fire. One shot, to the head, and then there was blood everywhere. Hecker had bought a hop sack to put the cases of liquor in. Now he stuffed the body into it and laid it somewhere out of sight, probably on the floorboards of the car. He was, of course, freaking out. He couldn't go back to Portland, possibly ever. Bowker's brother would be gunning for him now. So he drove south, making for his hometown of Albany. I needed gasoline, he told the jury. I thought I could get it someplace where they wouldn't know me. I saw a filling station at what they call Horseshoe Park, St. Paul. I drove in and got the gas and tried to act natural so they wouldn't suspicion me. The man didn't say anything. He just looked hard at me. He then drove in confusion and dismay and panic around Albany until he came to the old bridge over the Kalapuya, where he stopped and got the hopsack still dripping blood and heaved it over the rail. Then he cleaned himself up as best he could in the field, checked into the hotel to clean himself up more thoroughly, and drove back to Portland. Somewhere along the way, he stopped to clean the car up some, too. It was a pretty good story, but there were several reasons why it was hard to buy. First, as the prosecutor was not slow to point out, the only witness to Frank Bowker's boorish behavior and plans to rob Bob was the man who had killed him. Also, Hecker had gone through Bowker's pockets after killing him. Why would he do that unless intending to rob him of the liquor-buying money? But most damningly, there was no evidence that more than one shot had been fired. Witnesses near the bridge testified to having heard only one. So what about that thirty-eight shot with which Bowker allegedly tried to kill Hecker, making it self-defense? With his eyes full of the muzzle flash of that thirty-eight going off in his face, how likely was it that Hecker would be able to see and shoot Bowker's head? And how did Hecker account for the shot having entered the back of Bowker's head rather than the front? On the other hand, had Hecker set out to murder Bowker, he would hardly have used a borrowed car and gun or driven half the night with the body in the car to within blocks of his parents' house only to stay in a hotel, would he? Maybe not. But when sent into its chambers to ponder these things on July 1st, the jury took only an hour or so to come to a decision. Guilty of first-degree murder. Four days later, he was sentenced to be hanged. 
It never happened, though. A combination of good timing, excellent counsel, a phenomenally lucky break, and the intervention of a naive, newly elected governor resulted in Hecker's sentence being commuted. In fact, 15 years after his death sentence was handed down, he was a free man. The full story of the Bowker murder can be found in Corey Fry's book, Murder in Lynn County, Oregon. It's presented there as a sort of side dish to the main course, which is the Plainview killings, a tragic episode in the tiny Lynn County hamlet of Plainview that happened two months later, in which the county sheriff and a local pastor on what you might call a law enforcement ride-along were gunned down by a bootlegging farmer whom they had come to arrest. Key sources in this story were, of course, Corey Fry's Murder in Lynn County, Oregon, as well as the archives of the Portland Morning Oregonian from April 19th to 25th, 1922. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I do hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. Check out our hub page at offbeatoregon.com to explore all the other things we do or to find full citations and visuals that go with today's show. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details of that, see offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficarra. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Offbeat Oregon History episodes are uploaded every weekday morning at around 6 a.m., so it'll be a couple of days before you get your next fix. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day and the subsequent weekend with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.